Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Shankman on Money. This week, my opening talking points will discuss two important topics. The first will discuss a topic that is unfortunately quite timely in this challenging economic environment, which is what to do if you get laid off before you're ready to retire. Sadly, I get emails every week from folks who are five years or less from retirement and get let go from their employer. Hopefully, I can offer some helpful tips in this regard. My next set of talking points is in the spirit of Pride Month, and we'll discuss financial planning checklists for LGBTQ couples and families. Even though gay marriage is now legal, the reality is there are still challenges presented to these families, and I hope to offer some perspective on that as well. As always, I'll spend the last half of the episode answering listener questions. And with that, let's jump into this week's talking point. So one potential challenge facing workers in their 50s and 60s in this difficult economic environment is getting laid off before they're ready to retire. Sadly, there's no shortage of news stories about major companies laying off thousands of employees. For younger folks, a layoff is likely just to be a small bump in the road. In a few months, as the economy recovers, they will likely be able to secure a new job. However, it's not as simple for people nearing retirement. The repercussions for student-be retirees who are being let go from a job late in their career can be disastrous financially. Most investors plan to contribute meaningfully to their savings as they simultaneously hit their peak earning years and no longer have the expenses that come with raising children. Dipping into one's savings five to 10 years earlier than planned, instead of continuing to save and invest, can lead to very challenging years ahead. The best approach for this type of frustrating situation is to be proactive. Procrastination can further exasperate the negative impact of one's finances for years to come. Below, uh, I'll outline several points to consider after one gets laid off later in one's career. First is file for unemployment insurance. When dealing with the shock of being laid off from a long-time employer, it may be hard to determine what to do next. One of the first things to consider is filing for unemployment insurance once eligible. This may be overlooked by higher earners, where unemployment checks may be quite modest compared to previous earnings. However, it will serve as an income stream to help with some basic expenses. There's no reason not to claim the money to which you are entitled. The second is to adjust your budget. If you are a prudent budgeter throughout your career, you probably have six-month emergency fund for situations like this. That's great, but on the other precautionary measure is to reassess your expenses. There are certain expenses like mortgage payments, rent, utility bills, and groceries that can't be reduced. However, canceling your next vacation, that can't that can't be that can be reduced. Um, refraining from dining out, postponing from renovating your kitchen are all actions that can be taken until your financial future is more certain. The third is assessing your savings. This is a good time to take stock of what you have saved up. Set a time with your financial advisor to understand expected income from your current level of assets should you need to enter the decumulation stage of financial life today. Looking at cash flow projections, reassessing asset allocation, 
and determining if you need to make lifestyle changes are all important decisions to make in the event that you are unable to get back on the same income level. The fourth suggestion is to evaluate your social security options. The earliest age to start receiving social security retirement benefits is 62. At that age, you can collect 75% of the monthly benefits. For folks born in 1960 or later, age 67 is when you can collect 100% of your benefits. If you have a severance, emergency fund, or some other income sources, then waiting until full retirement age to claim benefits could be the best plan. However, if that is not a viable option, claiming now with a reduced benefit can be helpful from a cash flow perspective. It's important to note that while you are allowed to collect Social Security and unemployment benefits simultaneously, depending on where you live, your unemployment benefits might be reduced. If you have income coming from outside sources, it's important to do your due diligence before claiming Social Security. <clears throat> the fifth suggestion is to get health coverage. After lost income, one of the biggest concerns for workers that lost their job is the loss of their health insurance. If you're already 65, you can enroll in Medicare. If you're younger than 65, paying for COBRA can allow you to retain your old health plan. However, individuals may be required to pay the entire premium for coverage up to 102% of the cost of the plan. An alternative option is to buy a new plan on the open market. Be mindful that a health savings account or HSA is owned by you, not your employer. Therefore, you can continue to use it for qualified expenses, even if after getting laid off. This will be helpful for any medical expenses that arise while between jobs. And six, look for low-income planning opportunities. Being out of work and having a lower income may actually present excellent tax planning opportunities for investors. Some strategies to consider after consulting with your tax advisors include converting traditional IRA to Roth IRA, exercising stock options, maximizing IRA distributions, and selling appreciated stock. Each one of these decisions requires careful consideration of other aspects of your financial life, but being aware of potential opportunities, instead of just focusing on the obvious negatives, can lead to a meaningful tax savings. The seventh uh, suggestion is to rebrand yourself. Immediately applying for new jobs is an obvious decision. However, one of the reasons older employers may lose their jobs is due to an antiquated skill set. It may be helpful to reposition your skill set when job hunting. After spending several decades in a particular field, you are bound to pick up many things that the 25-year-old rookie who just replaced you does not yet possess. This includes experience, contacts, industry knowledge, secrets of the trade, and more. Leveraging these insights can lead to a career in a different job function within the same field. The eighth suggestion is to start a consulting business. Again, not... Knowledge amassed during years of experience in your field can serve as a valuable resource to many. One of the smartest moves I've seen from laid-off executives was setting up their own consulting firm. In doing so, they stayed active in their field, prevented gaps in their resume, maintained an income stream even if choppy, and continued to network with like-minded professionals. While the transition from a high-earning C-suite employee to an entrepreneurial consultant may be difficult, the benefit sure beats spending years unsuccessfully searching for work. Ninth suggestion is work longer than planned, but at a less stressful job. Changing careers may be a good opportunity to continue earning an income while reducing stress and improving your lifestyle. For example, if you worked as an, a corporate attorney at a large law firm, then switching to a nonprofit organization will surely lower your income. You may need to work longer to reach your financial goals. However, 
you'd also be trading regular, regularly spending 70 hours plus in the office every week for a significantly improved work-life balance. This strategy may have been unthinkable at your old job, but the ability to think outside the box is essential and not derailing your financial goals. And finally, 10, accelerate your retirement plan. If downsizing or relocating were on your list of things to do in retirement, accelerating those plans may provide the cost savings you need in order to comfortably retire today. Those two items alone offer many potential savings, including reduced expenses associated with upkeep of a larger home, taxes, commuting to work, insurance, and social pressures that may not be present in retirement. It's advisable to meet with your financial advisor and accountant to help run the numbers and have a conversation about the impact of such a decision. You may even leave that meeting feeling pleasantly surprised. While losing your job later in life is difficult, it can also serve as a wake-up call to get your finances in order before entering your official retirement. Getting a handle on your budget, organizing your finances, and evaluating your insurance coverages are all excellent ways to prepare for life after work. Furthermore, adjustments to your lifestyle by working as a consultant or in a different career can be great for mental health as you enter retirement. Although many people look forward to leaving the workforce, choosing to continue working, gradually transitioning out of corporate America to a less stressful job helps retirees keep active, have a daily structure, and stay mentally sharp while also providing some additional income to delay living strictly off their savings. As the challenging economic climate continues, there's no doubt that the trend of prematurely leaving the workforce will continue. Having a strategy in place for that possibility is the best way to preserve your finances as well as the retirement you envision. And now for my second set of talking points on financial planning for LGBTQ families. So June 26th this year will mark the eighth anniversary of the landmark Supreme Court decision to legalize same-sex marriage. Um, financial planning for the LGBTQ community has become less complicated with marriage equality. However, there are still areas that need special attention and are often overlooked. Taking a proactive approach will help ensure that LGBTQ couples' finances are handled in a way that supports their lifestyle, family, and values. So let's go through some important considerations to discuss with your financial and tax advisors to ensure that your family has proper planning in place for these, uh, this demographic. First, to wed or not to wed. While now legally able to marry, some in the, the LGBTQ community choose not to. There are finances planning implications for this personal decision. LGBTQ couples who do get married are governed by numerous laws and regulations applicable to married couples. For example, marriage automatically protects one's right to things like social security and military spouse benefits. Another advantage of getting married is the ability to freely pass money and assets back and forth without worrying about gifting limits. An unmarried couple who moves more than 17,000 annual gift tax exemption between partners may encounter problems from a tax perspective. A potential personal finance drawback to getting married is the so-called marriage penalty. This is the tax increase that many couples face once they combine their incomes and file as married filing jointly. Couples should assess their joint tax liability and explore ways to reduce their taxable income, such as utilizing tax advantage retirement savings plans. Next is domestic partnership agreements. Couples who do not marry will not have any legal protections for their assets if their relationship ends. A domestic partnership or cohabitation agreement may help outline financial expectations during the partnership 
and how assets should be divided if the relationship ends. It's important to note that these arrangements may have unfavorable income tax and gift tax consequences, which should be considered when drafted. Additionally, not all states recognize agreements by unmarried couples, so it's imperative to speak with an attorney who's familiar with the state law. <clears throat> Spousal benefits. There are some LGBTQ clients today who had different lifestyles earlier in their lives. It is not rare for some to have been in a heterosexual relationship for a period of time. In that scenario, if they had been married for 10 years prior to divorcing, then they may be eligible for Social Security spousal benefits. That stream of income can be important when planning for retirement. Remember, one does not, need, not have to be on good terms with their former spouse, nor does one even need to know the person's Social Security number to apply for these benefits. Furthermore, the ex-spouse is not notified about such inquiries by the Social Security Administration. If eligible, Social Security will notify you of the benefit. Claiming the spousal benefit may be sufficient for your cash flow needs, which may allow you to defer claiming your own earnings benefit. Allowing your own benefit to accumulate to age 70 can result in a much larger payout during your retirement years. Family planning. Deciding to have kids always comes with high expenses. This is particularly true with LGBTQ clients, where the process itself may be more costly. The least expensive option for LGBTQ folks to have a child is usually through the foster care system and adoption. The fertility process for biological children may be far more expensive, with procedures ranging from under $5,000 for inordering insemination, or IUI, up to $40,000, or more for in vitro fertilization, or IVF. Gay men who want a biological child may experience even higher costs, possibly well into the six figures. It's important for a client to reach out to their HR department at work to determine what type of benefits are offered for this process. Insurance often does not cover most of these costs, so planning should begin years in advance to develop a sufficient cash cushion. Next is the healthcare power of attorney. It's important to have a healthcare power of attorney which gives your partner the power to make healthcare decisions on your behalf. This is technically only necessary for unmarried individuals. It's good practice for all couples. Unfortunately, people encounter unscrupulous doctors or hospital staff who decide not to recognize their marriage due to discrimination. Having a healthcare power of attorney requires them to respect their wishes. Utilizing trusts. A revocable living trust is a useful planning vehicle, especially for LGBTQ families. Unlike wills, revocable trusts are not in the public domain. This helps keep your estate private from nosy friends and neighbors and can also help minimize offending other family members. Revocable trusts can be flexible, allowing them to be changed while someone is alive and becoming irrevocable upon death. This is important because unlike wills that can be successfully challenged, trusts cannot be contested by others, including family members who are antagonistic towards your lifestyle choices. The next is estate planning. Passing away without an estate plan can result in inadvertently leaving money to the wrong people. If you're unmarried, your assets would likely not go to your partner without a well-defined estate plan. The same is true for any children that are not natural heirs, which is sometimes the case for same-sex parents. In these scenarios, or for anyone without children or whose partner doesn't survive them, proper estate planning allows you to clearly determine to whom your assets go. Without a will, your state and testancy laws would dictate where your property goes. It could all pass to family members with whom you have had an estranged relationship 
or you might not have spoken to in 20 years. Doing periodic estate planning reviews are essential to ensure your assets will pass according to your wishes. Some same-sex couples have been together well before 2015. They may have some estate planning documents that predated their getting married once it became legalized. In this case, it's imperative to review all estate planning documents to ensure that it's in accords with the current intent and the current laws. And also review beneficiary designations. Certain assets like retirement accounts and life insurance policies can pass to the beneficiary on file without the need for a will and without going through probate. The named beneficiary takes precedence over a will, meaning whoever is listed as beneficiary will get those assets regardless of what a will might state. It's easy to overlook these designations, but they should be reviewed periodically and after any major life event. Last thing anybody wants is to have their insurance proceeds and retirement nest egg go to an ex-spouse because they never updated beneficiary designations. Okay, with those talking points this week, um, let's jump into uh, my quote of the week, which we'll do now in the middle of this segment. And just as a reminder, you can be notified of my recent articles, webinars, and all the work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at shankmanwealth.com forward slash newsletter. Now let's go into the quote. So for this week's quote, which is from best-selling author and financial writer, Morgan Housel, who said, doing well with money isn't necessarily about what you know, it's about how you behave. And behavior is hard to teach, even to really smart people. I've found that offering the proper investment solutions to clients is the easier part of my business, compared to getting clients to stay the course and preventing them for not making rash decisions. This aspect of the job, managing emotions and behavior, is the most difficult. Investors get distracted by short-term headlines, what others are doing, or engaging salesmen who are pitching the hot fad of the day. The key with investing is not to get overly excited about anything and, to tick, and stick with your strategy. To do that, you need to manage your behavior, and that is easier said than done. Okay, now let's jump into this week's financial questions. If you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at jonathan at shankmanwealth.com and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. Do you think AI will allow investors to achieve outsized returns? Um, not for most investors. For the early adopters who know how to properly harness AI, then that's possible. But eventually any advantage that AI brings to the table um, will be arbitraged away since everyone will have it and will no longer offer any edge to investors. AI is the new hot thing. Like everything that is new and hot, it will become overhyped, run its course, and eventually will move on to the next exciting thing. Next question, what strategy will make me ungodly rich? If you want to reach the next level of wealth, you need to start your own business and you need to be super successful. Remember, for 99% of people, the stock market won't make you super rich. It can make you wealthy with the net worth deep into eight figures. However, the market is meant primarily to grow and preserve your wealth over time. This will allow you to achieve your goals over the long term and give you options in the future. The way to get ungodly rich, as you called it, is to invest in yourself, develop a specialty, start a business around that specialty, market the heck out of your business, and continuously invest in your business. If you do all that and are very, very, very lucky, you will become super rich. Most people aren't that lucky, so continuously investing in the market is a good backup plan. With money market accounts paying just under 5%, why should I invest in anything else? 
While money market accounts are appealing right now, they are also not correct solutions for long-term investors, regardless of their current yield. Investing for a multi-decade time horizon requires significant equity exposure in order to maintain purchasing power. The lure of temporary high yields and the illusion of safety will harm many investors by distracting them from having the appropriate allocation to stocks within their portfolios. Furthermore, eventually the Fed will lower interest rates, the economy will improve, risk-free yields will fall, and the market will rebound. Timing exactly when this will occur is impossible. However, hiding out in the money market account caused many investors to miss the boat and subsequently caused them to lose buying power due to inflation. My wife and I want to save for our kids' college education. We're making Aliyah, don't know where the kids will choose to go to college. Does a 529 still make sense for us to save for college? Uh, possibly. Many accredited universities are okay to pay from your $529. And you could check on that by going to studentaid.gov, which has a list of approved schools. Another consideration for you is that Israeli schools are much cheaper than American universities. So I'd plan accordingly. While there's no tax benefit, given your kid's college uncertainty, setting up regular taxable account possibly a trust to pay for higher education, vocational school, or something along those lines may be a better option to offer more flexibility while avoiding any potential penalties that would be assessed to $529 if not used for appropriate expenses. 529s are definitely the preferred method to save for higher education in the U.S. However, once you go out of the country and have kids that may not go to U.S. colleges, other options are worth considering. Should I have my parents open 529 college savings account for my kids instead of me for FAFSA purposes? Technically, yes, this is a good idea because FAFSA does consider parents owned 529 accounts, but not grandparents owned 529 accounts. However, there needs to be a level of trust between family members to do this. If grandparents change their mind and decide to use 529 funds for other kids on a new Tesla or cocaine, they can do that, and then you'll be left without accumulated savings to pay for college. Also, if you're a high-income professional, odds are you won't qualify for needs-based aid anyway, so this type of intricate planning may be irrelevant. Okay, next question. This sounds like a bit of a rant, but the eventual question is timely, so let's read it. With President Trump once again being accused of some nonsense allegations that probably won't amount to anything, Similar to the Russian investigation, Ukraine controversy, tax, taxes bombshell, porn star situation, etc. I'm concerned that the Democrats are destroying our country. My concerns are further amplified if Biden dies in office and Kamala takes over. As has been proven, I don't think he's competent to run a small lemonade stand, let alone a country. Given this sad state of our nation, and here's the question, does it make sense to heavily overweight international stocks? Thank you. I, I love a good rant disguised as a question. However, on Shankman on money, we're not politically charged. Remember, money is green. It ain't Republican red. It ain't Democrat blue. It's not black or white or rainbow. It doesn't care how you identify it. And it most certainly doesn't care what is happening in Washington. So let's stick to the money part of your question, which is something I've said many times. Don't let politics mix into your portfolio. Your portfolio should be structured based on your goals time horizon, personal situation, and risk tolerance. In all these scenarios, international stocks are prudent to include. They offer diversification benefits that will help be helpful when the U.S. is going through a slump. Historically, the U.S. market's annualized return has slightly outpaced international stocks, 
And that is with factoring in the past 15 years of pretty much total US outperformance. The cycle will shift and international stocks will experience outperformance in the future. No one knows when this will happen, but it's prudent to have exposure to international stocks in your portfolio for those reasons. To close out my answer and bring it back to your rent, if everyone spent more time focusing on commerce, business, and making money, our country won't be so divided. After all, money is what unites us all. Next question. I've been told that's one of the downsides of an UMA account that belongs to the kids when they become of age and the parents no longer has control over it. The kids can literally blow it on anything. What say you on this lack of control? I acknowledge the drawbacks of an UPMA account. Um, if this is something that is concerning to you, then utilize a trust instead, which is more expensive to set up, but may be worth it given your circumstances. I personally don't care if my kids control these funds at 21. At some point, parents need to cut the cord and let their kids make their own decisions. The kids will have to live with the decisions they make. This is a good uh, lesson for life. Frankly, I would rather have my kids blow their savings at 21 and then hopefully learn their lesson of how being more prudent with money is a, is a, how being imprudent with money is a bad decision. Then for the rest of their lives, they'll act in a more responsible manner. Mistake, mistakes when you're young are oftentimes just small speed bumps that can help build character that shape the rest of our life in a good way. So those are my thoughts on that. Uh, question, what does Roth stand for in Roth IRA? A great question and one that everyone should be aware of and should be taught at a young age. Roth does not stand for anything. It is actually the name of Senator William Roth who proposed this legislation about retirement accounts. For those who don't know, a Roth IRA is an individual retirement account that offers tax-free growth and tax-free withdrawals in retirement. Uh, next question, when should I be doing Roth savings and when should I be doing traditional retirement savings? Theoretically, in peak earning years, you should use a traditional IRA. In low-income years, you should use a Roth IRA. But there are plenty of exceptions to this rule, including being a super saver, which may lead to being in a higher tax bracket later. Remember, obsessing over when, to, when you're going to be taxed on your retirement dollars is missing the main point. No one can predict with certainty which options will be more advantageous since there are so many unknowns like future tax rates, where you live in retirement, your financial situation, your income situation, potential rule changes, et cetera. The key with all this is that you are saving, not the taxes. The tax nerds may get worked up about my last comment, but it just means that they're not focused on the most important thing. Last question, I make $450,000 as a doctor and have another $40,000 that I make doing consulting work. Can I use my regular salary to count towards maxim, maxing out my self-employed retirement plan? No, money is fungible, but not that fungible. You can only count self-employed consulting income for this purpose, but there are many creative ways to save when you own your own business, including SEP IRA, simple solo 401k, using a Roth or traditional options, profit-sharing plan, cash balance plan, et cetera. You're able to max out your plan at work and put in something extra with a consulting gig, then you are doing a really solid job and you're in a very good financial situation to begin with. Um, okay, that's it for financial questions this week. Feel free to email me with any questions you may have, and I might answer them in a future episode. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. 
It's a spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.